Hello and welcome to Tully's Take on History. I'm Dr. Stuart Tully, and today we're doing a podcast that y'all recommended. Um, sorry I haven't been doing too many podcasts lately. I've been fairly busy um, trying to finish up uh, my book. I have um, actually under contract with a publisher for a book. It's my second set of revisions. Had to do a lot of editing. Um, and a pretty good place with it now. But, um... Anywho, I'm here today to talk about redlining. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about something that's both historical, but definitely has a modern impact. Now, as I record this, uh, today is June 17th, so it's the middle of June. Uh, we've had a couple weeks of protests in the United States uh, about racial matters. A lot of it has to do with um, the death of George Floyd. There's um, issues of police brutality. Uh, inequities for African Americans, things like that. And there has definitely been a response about it. Um, there have been people who have made comments, and I don't know if I'll say they're well-meaning or not well-meaning, but they ask if racism still exists. I mean, after all, you know, we uh, Jim Crow has been around for several decades, we've had a black president, all sorts of things. Uh, I remember seeing on Twitter a pundit, I don't know if they're talking in good faith or not, so that anybody under the age of 50 has not lived under systemic racism in the United States. And that caused a lot of controversy. And so today I'm going to be talking about systemic racism, historical perspective, because that's what I do, but also I can't deny there are some current impacts for this one, focusing a lot on redlining. Uh, before we get there, let's define racism for a second, Okay. All right. Uh, there are things like overt racism, and whenever somebody says there isn't, you know, racism in the United States, or I'm not racist, they're generally talking about overt racism. Uh, things like, you know, being a member of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, participating in a lynching, calling somebody the N-word, something like that. For a lot of uh, a lot of folks, a lot of white folks, that's pretty much where their definition of racism begins and ends. Uh, they say, you know, I'm not racist because, you know, I'm, I'm not a member of the Klan and I, you know, I don't, I don't lynch folks and, you know, I don't use the N-word, so I'm good to go. I'm not racist. Uh, however, that's really only part of the problem. There's also legal racism. Uh, you can call it de jure racism, like de jure racism. Uh, that's discrimination and segregation codified in the law. When we talk about things like Jim Crow, at least in my class, when I talk about Jim Crow, I'm generally talking about segregation put into law. There's a legal set of rules that basically says, here's how black people should and shouldn't act, here's where black people should and shouldn't congregate. Now, there's also violence. Now, this is also part of illegal segregation because generally, uh, as a historical thing, uh, a a violence against African Americans was generally not prosecuted. Uh, lynchings, for instance, um, are still not considered a hate crime or a federal offense. Um, lynchings were often done, in a historical perspective, as vigilante justice. Uh, most of the times, uh, African Americans were killed, uh, mainly because they were just black, but usually the white mob had the justification of that a crime was committed, usually a rape or something, and that you know they're bringing law and order to their area. Now, these things, Jim Crow laws and also violence, you know, not, violence against African Americans not being, you know, 
okay with the law or not enforced by the law. Uh, that generally does not exist anymore. And theoretically, this is what people are referring to whenever they say uh, systematic racism doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Jim Crow laws were indeed struck down, and to discriminate against somebody based upon race is now very punishable by law. But that's only one type of racism. That's racism by law. The other type, and the type that's way more common, is de facto um, discrimination. De facto racism. De facto segregation. Stuff that happens by custom or just by fact. In fact, the term de facto literally means by fact. This is much more prevalent. And it happens by custom, and as such, it's harder to get rid of and ingrained into way more th things. Now, some might call it self-segregation. Um, a lot of people bring up the uh, example of HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, as something which is, you know, oh, the black people are segregated themselves. Actually, a better example, forget HBCUs, churches. Um, you know, the idea that you have a black church and a white church... African-Americans self-segregate in the church. They can go to a white church if they want to nowadays, but they choose to go there, and that is considered de facto segregation. I would not call that racist. I just call that, you know, maintaining one's culture. So most systematic racism that exists today, in fact, I'd say all systematic racism that exists today, well, some, most. Dang it, okay, I, I can't say all, that's a story to me. Because if you ever say all, you're opening yourself up for an exception. There's always exceptions. But most of the systematic racism around today is de facto. And a good bit of the de facto stuff is the legacy of the stuff that was in the law. So before we get into redlining, uh, the meat of the matter, let's get a little bit of backstory, all right? Now, I'm not going all the way back to Africa. I'm not going back to where the slave ships first come. And I am not even going to go back to the Civil War. I'm going to go to right when the Civil War ends. So the Civil War is over. Uh, if you don't know the Civil War is over, uh, it is. <laughs> uh, the North wins. The United States wins the Civil War. The Confederacy loses the Civil War. And thanks to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, um, black folks have been freed from slavery. They've gotten citizenship and are allowed to vote. Now, we might take these things for granted, but actually every single one of those was really in question at the beginning of the Civil War. Um, even Lincoln, whenever he starts out as president, is not fully on board with the idea of black citizenship. Um, early on, he's talking more about maybe we could colonize them, send them somewhere else. The idea that black folks can stay around the United States and become full citizens is not something that is 100% entrenched. However, by the end of the war, by the passage of the amendments, you know, 13th Amendment, free slavery, well, in slavery... 14th Amendment grants citizenship. 15th Amendment says you have the right to vote if you're a citizen. Uh, the problem is that how to transition this population that had been property into citizens. Now, this is going to take a ton of time, effort, money, education, just a lot of resources. Uh, early example of this is the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau, it's, it's horribly underfunded. It exists mainly to help uh, the newly freed slaves, um, have a chance for, you know, education. Uh, they do things like negotiate labor contracts, you know, to help them out. Uh, it's very much hated by Southerners, and it's also horrendously underfunded. It's comically underfunded. I want to say there was maybe one uh, Freedmen's Bureau agent for every 10,000 uh, freed slaves. So, yeesh. 
Uh, in time, dot violence and white supremacy come to dominate the early South. Uh, this is when you have groups like the first KKK, which we're going to talk about in another podcast because that was the number two thing you wanted to hear about was the Second Klan. Uh, ultimately, the United States pulls out of the South mainly because it is costing a lot of money. Uh, remember, wars cost a ton of money, and you know the South has to pay back the cost of the war. Uh, because, you know, they rebelled, and now it's time to rebel. And also, uh, the country in general is not too interested in helping out freed slaves. Um, the United States as a whole has some racist issues uh, in this time period. Uh, that's something that doesn't really change uh, north or south in this time period. Nobody's really hunky-dory with African Americans in this time period. So what happens of the former slaves? Well, most of them become sharecroppers. Uh, prior to the Civil War, most black folks live in the South. They have no education, no wealth, because they're slaves, and working in agriculture as a primary rural population. Uh, this is the case after the war. With sharecropping, in fact, a lot of these freed slaves are working for their old masters, same plantation, working the same work, except now they can get into debt. Uh, I'm not saying that sharecropping is better, or, well, it's, it's definitely better than slavery. I would never say that sharecropping is worse than slavery, because, you know, you're, you're not a slave, which is good. However, it's not a million times better. On top of that, the 13th Amendment, which uh, outlaws slavery, has a big old caveat. It outlaws slavery except as punishment for a crime. So, of course, that was exploited, like, all the time. Um, you know, punishment for a crime could be enslavement. Uh, they pass all sorts of black codes and things like that, which basically say that, you know, African Americans have to work, and if they're not working, they have loitering laws. So if you're not working, you can be put into jail, and you can be made to work. And a lot of times, this, this could be for a plantation. But it's like Birmingham, you were in mines, which was way worse than plantation work, way more dangerous, etc., uh, time does pass some more. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm getting to redlining, so I'm just kind of doing a, a... This is the stuff that would take me literally two weeks on my African-American history course to go into, so I'm trying the best I can to kind of condense this. Uh, de jure racism. De jure racism is running rampant in the South. I think the Supreme Court agrees in Plessy v. Ferguson that Jim Crow is okay since it reflected, quote, reflected customs and traditions and, quote, preserved public peace and good order. Basically, it said, yeah, racism being set, you know, racism being separate, segregation is okay. It keeps the order. Even so, some black folks are doing okay and are even starting to own property. I'll talk about a property owner in a second. Uh, there is also a sense of agency about maybe we're going to leave the South if we have the chance. Now that's the big sticky wicket. Is if they have the chance to leave the South, will they? Now, the chance to leave the South comes into play with the Great Migration. Uh, the Great Migration starts around World War I. In fact, accordingly, according to the 1910 census, about 90% of the U.S. African-American population lives in the South, and about 80% of those live in rural areas. Uh, for most of American history, African-Americans were a very rural southern phenomenon. But because of World War I, there's a lot of factories in the north 
that want cheap labor, particularly non-union labor, and African Americans look keen and beautiful to do it. Uh, recruiters, they go, uh, they go down to the south. They tell black workers, "Hey, why don't, uh, sorry, they tell black sharecroppers, hey, why don't y'all come on up to Chicago? Why don't y'all come on up to a place like Detroit, New York City, Cleveland, Philadelphia?" Uh, they promise these black folks all sorts of things. They promise them higher wages, which is technically true. Uh, they, you do get paid higher wages to work in one of these factories as opposed to being a sharecropper. That being said, you're still getting paid significantly less than the union workers or the white workers, which was the reason why they were coming down in the first place to get black workers. And the big one, the big one that they really push is that there is no... Jim Crow laws in the North. They claim there is no legal segregation in the North, and it's a chance for African Americans to live without the threat of all these wacky Jim Crow laws. Now, demographic, demographics do change in this time period. Uh, way more black folks after this after the immigration, they're living in large cities than anywhere else, and about 50% are living outside of the South. So the Great Migration changes African American population from a primarily rural southern phenomenon to a primarily urban phenomenon that is about half in the south, half other places. Now, this claim that segregation and Jim Crow does not exist in the north is problematic, yet technically true. Uh, northern cities like your Chicago's, Detroit, Philadelphia, New York City, etc., they don't have Jim Crow laws on the books. However, what they do have is de facto segregation all over the place. And not just of black and white, but different ethnicities. Uh, probably the best example of this is in Chicago. Uh, Chicago has been labeled the city of neighborhoods. There are tons of little neighborhoods in Chicago with all sorts of different groups. Uh, the Irish have their own place. The Albanians have another place. There's little Italy. All these little ethnic enclaves. Now, this is done by custom and also by choice, since a lot of first-generation immigrants uh, don't tend to learn English. They tend not to integrate too much or assimilate, I should say, into mainstream culture in this time period. Uh, Second-generation immigrants, they usually grow up, learning, grow up knowing English, speaking English, and they are pretty much fully ingrained into American culture. And so when African-Americans get to these northern cities, they see, hey... There is no Jim Crow segregation. You know, we're not enforcing segregation by law, but there's a custom that, you know, people of different ethnicities and stuff live in different neighborhoods. And most black folks are okay with this whenever it starts out. They actually look forward to it because they find in these neighborhoods people are generally left alone. And they are okay without living under the threat of legalized racism. Well, uh, that threat... Uh, <laughs> Peace doesn't last very long. Uh, racial tensions rise fairly quickly after this. A great example of this is the 1919 Chicago riot, uh, which occurs whenever a black swimmer swims over in Lake Michigan from a black area of the lake to a white beach. Uh, these beaches are not segregated by law. Uh, they're segregated by custom, and not a very long custom, since uh, Chicago's African-American population was only within the past couple of years. Uh, still, tensions start brewing. Uh, there's a rock thrown at the swimmer. National Guard is called in. It's a big, hairy mess. Now, it bears mentioning that a lot of uh, race issues, a lot of racial tensions, 
are based upon economic competition. Uh, they took our jobs. The idea that you know these these people are coming into our area, they're undercutting the price of labor, they're taking our jobs, they're making everything worse and worse. Uh, by the time we get to the 1920s and the Great Depression, uh, black folks are living in northern cities and urban areas, which are pretty daggum segregated, even though there are no laws mandating such. Uh, they are able to vote. Well, they have the ability to vote in these northern cities. Uh, this is problematic. I'm not going to get into all that, but just know, theoretically, an uh, urban black person in the north is allowed to vote. And those who can vote tend to vote Republican because the Democrats were the party of the South, they were the party of the Jim Crow leadership. So it kind of bared mentioning that if a, if a black folk did vote in this time period, they generally voted Republican. That's going to change. We're going to get into that. <coughs> now this is also when the second clan comes into being. I'm going to be doing a much longer podcast about the second clan, don't worry. But unlike the first clan, which is a very regionalized phenomenon, it's pretty much just in the South, it pretty much just doesn't like black people, um, this new clan is all over the place. It's not just Democrats or Republicans, it's both parties. Um, it's most popular in places like Indiana and New Jersey, which previously did not have a very high black population. Likewise, this new clan doesn't like immigrants, they don't like... Uh, Jews, they don't like Catholics, uh, they call themselves the defenders of womanhood, stuff like that. The old clan was really just anti-black. This new, this new clan is anti a lot more different people, and a lot of this tension comes from the Great Migration and also the uh, immigrant immigration. Uh, still in these urbanized areas, though, African Americans are kind of doing their own thing. Uh, because of segregation, they have their own businesses. A uh, big one is their own banks. Um, in my book, I talk a little bit about African American black-owned banks. Uh, by and large, black folks were not allowed to bank at white banks. This is not a, unusual in a lot of these northern cities. Um, a lot of these ethnic enclaves have their own banks. Uh, they generally don't have the resources or you know means. They definitely don't have as much money as a larger bank. But still, banks are something very important. In fact, banks are very important in general. Um, not just as a place to you know, save your money and have it safely secured, but also if you want to start a business or particularly buy a house, you need to go to a bank. Uh, this is likewise when we're in the 1920s. We're talking about the high point of the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, this idea that you have a middle and sometimes even upper class African American population which has education, has means, and is doing okay. That's the case until the Great Depression. And when the Great Depression hits, it is very bad for black folks. Like, disproportionately bad. Uh, segregated businesses, particularly banks, go uh, under at a much higher rate than their white counterparts. I hesitate to use the word all, but pretty much almost every African-American-owned bank went under during the Great Depression mainly because they just didn't have the access to credit lines and money like their white counterparts did. Uh, with the closure of black banks, black businesses don't go, aren't able to open, people aren't able to borrow money for homes. We'll talk about homes in just a second. Um, it's bad all around. Uh, Herbert Hoover, who is a Republican, uh, he was actually hailed as a great humanitarian for his efforts in the flood of 1927. Uh, there was a Mississippi River flood in 1927. Uh, really hurt 
like poor people, black and white, because they blew up the levees so New Orleans wouldn't flood. So everybody else flooded uh, north of the you know north of there. Um, Herbert Hoover actually organized like the relief efforts for black and white, and he was hailed as a hero for that. Um, when it comes to the Great Depression, however, Herbert Hoover does nothing. Herbert Hoover doesn't want uh, government involvement. Instead, he encouraged um, businesses and individuals and Americans to act upon themselves. That doesn't go over very well. Um, this is where black voters start to get a little bit alienated by the Republican Party. Uh, we're going to get into that a little bit later when we get into FDR. In fact, we're getting into FDR right now. FDR comes into office in 1932, promising a new deal, which is a very generic set of programs during the campaign. He doesn't really give too many hard answers as to what the new deal is. What it does turn into is a bunch of different congressional programs where the U.S. government is going to spend deficit money to try to make the Great Depression tolerable. All right, let's talk about mortgages for a second. Uh, a mortgage. Um, you know, the term mortgage has a word definite, which is kind of funny. Uh, basically, a mortgage is... Uh, <laughs> a mortgage doesn't kill you, don't worry. The idea of a mortgage is basically once it's paid, the debt is paid in full, and the debt is dead. Uh, mortgages are generally used for houses. In fact, the term mortgage, I think in English, is synonymous with houses. I... I can't think of any other time you might get a mortgage on something. Um, houses are very expensive, but they're a very good investment. Um, I've heard it said that a house is a savings account you can live in, because houses in general increase in value. Most of the time, a house will increase in value. Uh, houses are a very solid asset. Uh, they are seen as the bedrock foundation of the American dream. You know, the stereotypical American dream is to have that you know that little house with the white picket fence and all these sort of things. Now, the U.S., for most of its history, has a perception of land being free or cheap. This is called the Frontier Thesis. Uh, Frederick Jackson Turner does this. I'm not talking about the Frontier Thesis today, but it's a very important concept. And for some folks, uh, getting rural land and property wasn't too big of a deal. You have things like homesteading. However, that's not the case in urban areas because most of the land is already settled because, you know, it's in a city. Now, most people before this time built houses on their own, uh, thanks to homesteading. In fact, that was a requirement for homesteading, was that you have to show improvement upon your land. And if you show improvement, you get the land. Or they might borrow against the, the rural land or property. Uh, what mortgages do exist are generally in the city, and they are prohibitively expensive. Uh, usually requiring a 50% down payment and a 5-7 to seven year term. So if, I just want you to imagine, if you want to buy a house, let's say, okay, the average home value in the United States right now, the average cost of a house is uh, $227,000. So let's use that as a number. That's a nice number. So to put down a 50% down payment, you're going to have to have about, oh, $114,000. Pay it off over five years at an interest rate of 5%. That was actually a very generous interest rate in this time period. Most interest rates have been higher this time period. You're looking at a monthly payment of about, uh, well, according to Mr. Mortgage Calculator right here, about $2,500 a month. Um, that is quite high, which makes most mortgages prohibitively expensive for most people. 
because of this, um, houses were really not bought by a lot of people in cities. And by the time we get to the Great Depression, whenever money is even harder to come by, uh, a lot of people can't afford to buy houses anymore. And this is very bad for the whole economy because there are a lot of associated businesses with houses. Um, banks, of course. Banks, uh, gosh, banks make their bread and butter by doing mortgages. Um, associated businesses like um, hardware stores and um, God, everything is kind of built around houses. The tax base, that's a big one. Because property taxes are a really big way that think, uh, a lot of things are paid for. And the U.S. is facing a housing crisis in the Great Depression. And if it isn't fixed, it's going to make an already damaged economy uh, hurt even further. It's going to make things even worse. Plus, there isn't exactly a ton of money out there, so the federal government has to be super careful about spending money and deficit spending. Uh, FDR is doing something that, uh, you know... Hoover is not willing to do because he says the federal government should be spending that amount of money because are we guaranteed to get a good ROI, good return on investment? So the government has to justify why pouring all this money into houses is a, being a good steward of the taxpayers' dollars or the deficit spending and it's going to guarantee a good return on investment to justify why they are spending in deficit. It's the idea of being like, why is that a decent idea to buy a house now? Because generally houses increase in value, and you're not, you know, even though you're borrowing money, you're not going to lose money, as opposed to, I don't know, borrowing money for, I don't know, taking out a huge loan to buy something that's going to depreciate in value. I, I should mention, by the way, of this time period, most urban black folks don't own their own home. Uh, some do, some do, uh, but a lot didn't. Like I said, it's very expensive, I mean, with a 50% down payment, uh, especially for people who had just moved into a region in the Great Migration. Uh, think about it. If the Great Migration starts in 1916, and the Depression starts in 1929, so, you know, an FDR comes in in 1933, we're talking about about 15 years or so in which African Americans are in these uh, urban cities, earning lower wages than uh, their white counterparts, it might take a while to save up 50% for a house. Um, I think nowadays the, the standard mortgage, the, you know, you, I think they, they, they say save up 20%, but I think it's even lower now. Um, it, it, it takes a while to save up that amount of money. Uh, because of this, renting is incredibly common, or was incredibly common, in these urban black areas. Uh, the apartments and tenant houses were generally older. Uh, they lack a lot of modern amenities in this time period. Uh, water, electricity, things like that, because it was, it was very expensive to update. Uh, still, most black folks are okay with it because they're, um, you know, they might be an old building in a city, but they're a lot better than a lot of these shacks the sharecroppers are living in. Uh, in fact, a lot of the time, the sharecropper cabin was a slave cabin. And they, and, and even though most African Americans understand that rent is generally higher for black folks than other workers, it's still better than being a sharecropper. You know, they say, hey, rent's high, wages are low, but by and large, it's better than being a sharecropper. Now, I could mention, I should mention, um, plugging my own work here, that's okay, that uh, some rural black people did own their own land, but that could be problematic. Uh, for instance, you have Barry Gordy Sr., who's actually Barry Gordy II, but whatever, Barry Gordy, the guy who founded Motown, his dad, his dad was a fairly wealthy landowner, not wealthy, but he was a very... He was a landowner, a black landowner in uh, Georgia. 
but he was doing okay. He had a farm, a couple dozen acres in Georgia, um, which was, you know, unusual but not unheard of in the area. However, he became so wealthy. I don't want to say wealthy. He was, he wasn't wealthy by white standards, but he was so wealthy for a black person that basically the local clan started paying notice to Barry Gordy's dad, and that's why Barry Gordy's dad left for Detroit. If a black person did own property, it was generally in the South, that could be problematic. Also, I'm going to play my own research again. Uh, sometimes these landlords were black. In fact, probably the best known of these landlords is John E. Nail. Uh, he owns most of Harlem. Uh, he starts out as, just as, a, as a real estate agent. Uh, he actually partners with a pastor to pretty much buy up most of Harlem. So whenever the people from the South start moving into Harlem, he's ready to give them a place to live. He recognizes that most of them don't have a lot of money, so he doesn't sell the houses. He rents them. Likewise, he rents business space, office space. So he owns most of Harlem. He's getting a lot of money from the people in Harlem. Uh, he is a controversial figure. He is criticized for getting wealthy by what some people as being a slumlord. Uh, he's also friends with Harry Pace. He even serves on the board of Black Swan Records, which is something I write about a lot in my book, is Black Swan Records. So because of this dynamic, a lot of these uh, African-American urban areas kind of get a bad reputation as being unsafe, dangerous, but primarily poor. Uh, very transient population, people who don't know the area. They're just Johnny-come-latelys come to take our jobs. So as part of the New Deal, uh, FDR establishes the Federal Housing Authority, the FHA, in 1934 to make sure the housing market didn't collapse, which we talked about a little bit earlier about why that was necessary. Uh, the FHA made it more obtainable for citizens to buy homes by doing the following. Number one, it totally changed mortgage rates. Uh, the modern-day mortgage comes into play because of the FHA. 50% uh, is out entirely as a down payment. Uh, 10 to 20% becomes the norm. Uh, terms were extended from 5 to 7 years to uh, 15 and even 30 years. In fact, 30-year mortgage is the norm nowadays. Uh, I believe nowadays, if you want to get an FHA loan, uh, it is 3.5% is what you have to put down as a down payment, which is much more obtainable. If we are talking about that um, that that house that was what two hundred and twenty-seven thousand uh, dollars, three point five percent down payment would be about eight grand. Uh, that's considerably less than that. Uh, I think it was like a hundred and thirteen grand you had to have for a fifty percent down payment. A lot more obtainable. Uh, the FHA loans tended to have higher interest rates than the loans beforehand, but it was more obtainable for most people. Uh, the FHA also ensured that you know bankers would be willing to lend to mortgages uh, by ensuring these mortgages from default. Basically, if a bank knows that the federal government is going to pay for a mortgage should the mortgage go into default, they're going to be more inclined to give a mortgage to somebody. Now, the FHA requires certain things to make sure the mortgages have a good chance of becoming repaid. Remember, the whole watchword is you know being a good you know, responsible steward of your money. They are deficit spending. They want to make sure that the federal government just doesn't go into crazy deep debt. Uh, the first thing is that the houses have to meet certain criteria. Uh, utilities become mandatory. Things like running water, electricity, sewage. Uh, the house had to have be a certain size, have certain requirements, be made out of certain materials, uh, have safety precautions so they don't burn or they don't have any other issues like that. 
Uh, this is still the case, actually. The FHA, if you want to get an FHA loan, uh, the FHA mandates certain things. Now, this is generally good for consumers because, I mean, modern amenities are nice. Uh, they make they certainly make thing, make sure things are healthier. Uh, for instance, you probably wouldn't want to live in a house nowadays that didn't have running water. In fact, I'd, I'd love to see how you get a house without running water or sewage. Sewage is a big one, especially in a lot of these urban areas. It also makes sure that the property holds its value better. Uh, for instance, you probably wouldn't want to buy a house that didn't have running water. And if you're going to sell a house with running water, you're going to have to sell it for a lot cheaper because people are going to want to have that. However, there is some criticism of this part. It does seem to favor urban areas over rural areas, particularly when it comes to electricity. A lot of FDR's base is, remember FDR is a Democrat, the Democratic base is in the South. And a lot of Southern Democrats live in areas that are more remote, and they may not have access to such utilities. This is why we later have things like the TVA, uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Rural Electrification Act, and a host of other New Deal programs, is basically provide these utilities to people who didn't otherwise have. Now the big one, the one we're going to be talking about, is that these houses that are going to get the FHA loans need to be in certain neighborhoods because they were in this deemed of having the best chance of maintaining their value. Remember, a house is expensive. A house is something that is you want to retain its value for quite a while. Now this was done for the benefit of the lender. Should the mortgage go into default, they want to make sure they can get their money out of it. Likewise, it's a depression, and the federal government doesn't want to be seen like they're throwing a limited money supply away. Even though they're deficit spending, they don't want to see like things are going crazy here. This is still very much done today. Um, if you're going to get a mortgage, the bank or the mortgage company, whoever else you're going through, is going to send out their own appraiser to look at the land. You know, if you're building a house, to look at the plans. And they're going to see the house and make sure, you know, look at comps, look at the area, see what the, you know, the, the forecast is for the area. They want to make sure that if they have to repossess the house, they're going to get their money out of it. Now, this is a massive undertaking. And the FHA, which is a new federal agency, decides they partner with other real estate agents, people who've been on the ground for a while, and appraisers on the ground to make a map. And the initial map is of 239 different urban areas to assess the most and least desirable areas to give mortgages. Now this has a color-coded system. You can look at these maps. They're, they're very easy to Google. If you, get, you know, Google one of these maps, you know, the redlining map, whatever you want to call it, you will find them. Now the type A areas were in green. These were usually the newer areas of town. They have the most amenities. They were labeled the best areas. In fact, they were, they were called most desirable. They're best. This is the one that the FHA, if somebody wants to build a home in this area or buy a house in this area, FHA is cool with it. Like I said, it's generally newer parts of town, suburbs, other developments. Uh, type B are in blue. They're often in the older, but in the still, quote-unquote, good parts of town. Uh, for instance, um, if you look at New Orleans, Audubon Park, uh, around Audubon Park, around Tulane, that area, it was in blue. It was considered a good park. Um, they're labeled still desirable. They often have a justification as to why they weren't higher up. Uh, for instance, older houses would be less inclined to have modern utilities. Remember, uh, modern utilities are something that um, 
the federal government wants these houses to have. Also, it's much easier to build a new house with modern amenities than it is to retrofit a house with modern amenities. Uh, if anybody's had to deal with, like, a, you know, if you have a house that's on the Registry of Historic Places and you want to update the sewer system, it, it's, a, it's a nightmare. Generally, a newer house is easier to do that. Uh, you know, like I said, older houses would be less likely to have the modern utilities. Also, a lot of these older neighborhoods that are more established, uh, the houses simply never go on sale, or if they do, they are so prohibitively expensive, or it's a word-of-mouth thing. Uh, the Type C areas there in yellow, they were definitely declining. These are areas that were have kind of gone down. Uh, the federal government's like, yeah, don't, don't, don't put your money there. You're probably not going to get your investment out of it. The type D areas were the ones in red. This is where we get the term redlining. They were simply labeled hazardous. These were the ones that were the least likely to get FHA support. It's not impossible, it's just that the requirements are much, much higher. You know, the amount of down payment, the loan rates, the interest rates, stuff like that, they're less favorable in these areas than the other areas. And by some strange coincidence, the most common unifying factor in red areas was the presence of poor black people, which was most black people of the time period. Now, this is not just me making stuff up. This is not just me being like, oh, man, people were racist. If you read the clarifying remarks that these uh, appraisers put down as justifying the areas, they will straight up say this stuff. For instance, uh, in Richmond, Virginia, there's a B area, all right? So a type B, a blue area, that the comment read, quote, respectable area... Sorry, respectable people, but homes are too near Negro area. Pretty straightforward. If it wasn't a Negro area nearby, it'd be an A-house. Uh, in Camden, New Jersey, uh, Camden, New Jersey is right across the river from Philadelphia. Uh, there's a D area right next to an A area, but it's justified. Uh, it said that the D area says it is, quote, 100% poor class Negroes, practically all in relief. And for the nice area, the red area, the... Uh, the a area, it says, quote, a high wall, however, prevents their spread. So basically, yes, there are black people nearby, but there's a wall, things are contained. Uh, this is even the case with ethnic groups. Uh, in another neighborhood in Camden, which was a primarily Polish uh, neighborhood, which had actually incomes and home values similar to the black areas, was graded declining, which was just one step above a red line neighborhood. It said, quote, Negro district on edge of section, but splendid cooperation of all residents in the section will always prevent spread. So the idea being, eh, if you can make sure that black people don't move into your neighborhood, things are going to, home values are going to stay up. In essence, this is kind of a variation of the old one drop rule, which was used in like segregation and stuff, except with houses. Uh, the idea being in the South, if you were, if you had one drop of black blood, you were considered black. Now these neighborhoods, if they had one house considered, they had one black house in a neighborhood, the entire neighborhood was considered black, and therefore less desirable. Uh, this had been the case informally. I'm not saying the FHA invented this, but now they're putting it into federal practice. Not quite law, just federal practice. The FHA is a very popular program. It's still a fairly popular program. It's a good way for people to get houses. And it wasn't technically racist. It wasn't impossible to get an FHA mortgage in these redlined areas. It was just very hard. The requirements were much, much harder. There was nothing in the official language of the FHA that prevented black folks from buying a home, 
the house just had to meet certain requirements or be in certain neighborhoods. The problem was, in the areas that would let black people buy houses, they're usually in older areas and lack the utilities required. Most builders of new houses or new neighborhoods simply wouldn't sell to black people. Furthermore, it becomes common in these neighborhoods to have legal compacts that forbade residents from selling to a black person. Technically, once you buy a house, you can do whatever the heck you want with it. Uh, these, these compacts, however, were ultimately ruled unconstitutional. Uh, Hansberry versus Lee, another case I talk about in my book. But that doesn't stop people from doing so on a de facto basis. Remember, as I said, a lot of segregation is de facto. It's not legal. It's not, it's not really codified in law. It just is practice. Uh, think of something like a country club. Uh, a country club is a private club that can choose its own members. And a lot of times, a lot of these country clubs are pretty straight-up racist, but because it's a private club, you can't mandate people to do stuff. Uh, this practice does continue well into the post-World War II world. Um, places like Levittown, which is outside New York City, being made exclusively for white people. Um, Levittown, uh, Levitt, he said, uh, basically, I can solve the housing, housing prices, sorry, I can solve the house problem or the race problem, not both. And by the way, I should mention Levittown houses, which I might, you, I know you've seen the neighborhoods, and you think, oh gosh, they're a bunch of bad houses. They're actually pretty well-made houses, and they're also insanely cheap. Uh, comparable nowadays to a $68,000 house with a $300 a month mortgage. So black people were generally not allowed to get a mortgage from this federal program, even though the program wasn't explicitly racist. Um, most neighborhoods where they could theoretically afford a house, which had the amenities, would not rent to black people. Areas which would rent to black people generally didn't have the amenities or other things of FHA deem requirement. So what happens over time? Well, the areas in green and blue got better. Home ownership increased, and with more home ownership increasing, uh, more businesses and other amenities move into the area. And once people paid off the mortgage, it becomes a very solid asset that people could borrow against, sell, do whatever they want. They could use that money for other things, like starting their kids' education, you know, paying for their kids' education, start a business, whatever. Home values also increase. And with the, with the value of a house increasing, even if you don't sell it, your property taxes increase. With property taxes going up, schools get better. In fact, the main thing that funds schools is property taxes. Um, public services get better. As schools get better, hospitals do too, city services, parks, you know, white picket fits neighborhoods, everything looks wonderful. And all this is built upon the bedrock of home values that continue to rise. Now, it should be noted, you only have to pay off the mortgage of what you owe, even though the house will continue to raise in value. You know, houses on average raise about, eh, I want to say 5% or so, 3 or 5% per year, but your mortgage doesn't increase 3 or 5% a year. So over the course of a very long mortgage, you're paying, you know, your house is worth way more than what you paid for it. It's not unusual for these houses to increase... 10 to 20 times their initial value over the course of several decades. Um, that's really not unusual. Like, if you bought a house in the 70s for $20,000, and it's now worth three, dollars $400,000, that's not unusual in some areas. You just made 20 times your initial investment, even though you're only paying for your initial investment. The main reason for the increase in value is that these areas are becoming increasingly desirable. If you deal with any part of real estate, you're always going to hear location, location, location. It's not just the house, 
It's the neighborhood around it. It's the amenities. Are the schools good? People will move to a good school district. People will move to good city parks and stuff like that. And that's all built upon the bedrock of decent home values. But that's not the case in red areas. What ends up happening is a social, self-fulfilling prophecy. Because it's harder to get mortgaged in these areas, fewer people are inclined to buy homes. As such, businesses and other services don't come in as well, and home values decline. And those paying rents are not building equity or really creating an asset. With home values staying stagnant or even decreasing, property taxes don't increase, they go down. Schools get worse as other services as well. A bad area gets worse and justified labeling it as bad in the first place. That's the genius here, the evil genius of the self-fulfilling prophecy. By saying it's a bad area and a bad investment, it pretty much made it into a bad investment. Now, this is probably the main cause of the continued difference in wealth in black and white households, even though incomes can often be the same. It's because that bedrock foundation of, hey, you know, the home value that you've built up is quite different. Now, was this, ever co was this concept ever utilized by unscrupulous persons to get rich off of racial fears? Boy, howdy, yes, it does. Let me introduce you to a 1962 article from the Saturday Evening Post, which I would highly recommend you Google. If you ever heard of this article, Google it right now. It's called Confessions of a Blockbuster. The anonymous author is a real estate agent in Chicago who plays off of underlying racial attitudes and fears for economic purposes. Remember, none of the segregation of houses was quote-unquote legal. It was just very de facto and supported by the federal government. So white persons, who have a lot of their finances in their house, want their homes to keep their value and grow. And black people want to move out of bad neighborhoods. Now, there's a fear of black people moving into a previously white neighborhood since it will take the home values. So what this real estate agent does, he calls himself Mr. Blockbuster, he goes into these working-class white neighborhoods and makes a low-ball cash offer on the house. Let's say the house is worth $20,000. He says, hey, I'm going to give you $18,000 for a house. Now, the homeowner refuses. He's like, no, gosh, I, my house is worth $20,000. I won't take a penny less than $20,000. I've been living here for 20 years. It's my house. All of a sudden, the next day or the next week, a black family, who the real estate agent has either hired or sold a house to, moves into the neighborhood. All of a sudden, the white person is desperate to sell, and it's going to take an even lower offer. That $18,000 offer, well, that's off the table. That was earlier. Home values have already started to call. You know, it's now $15,000, $12,000, Now, the real estate agent is going to, you know, buy this house from the white person, and they're going to turn around and sell that house at an even higher price to a black person, to a black family. And they're going to sell it even higher than the $20,000. They're going to say, it's, eh, it's $25,000 because it's such a good neighborhood. It's such a good neighborhood, you know, you're going to have to pay more for that. Likewise, because they don't, most African Americans don't have that financial means to buy at uh, advantageous rates, the real estate agent is going to give them a deal with crazy high interest rates, but you know what? They can get it. Because even though this is a FHA-approved area, they may not have the resources to get an FHA loan. Mr. Blockbuster claims that you know anybody doing this in Chicago, by the way, I think I mentioned he's based in Chicago, anybody in Chicago doing this, 
He says you're going to make at least $100,000 a year unless you're lazy. In modern day money, it's about $900,000 a year. Now this isn't just in Chicago, as several unscrupulous agents throughout the country are doing the same thing. Now this uncertainty is at the heart of all sorts of unrest. Um, in his book, uh, Origins of the Urban Crisis, Thomas Sigrid shows how this sort of practice and white flight contributes to the 1967 Detroit riots. Likewise, the Boston school busing riots in the 1970s were based largely on economic uncertainty. Um, South Boston has a pretty long history of being quite racist towards African Americans. Uh, the idea of forcing busing in, you know, taking apart neighborhood schools, or saying that black children and white children go to school together, that is at the root of a lot of anger, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, this is something which still occurs, I will say, even within my lifetime. Uh, when I was in middle school, in the late 1990s, um, our schools had to get reshuffled because of a desegregation order. Uh, they said that the schools in Baton Rouge were not desegregated, and they had to move students around. Some force, force busing did occur. Uh, likewise, uh, the parish that I worked in for a while, Tangipahoe Parish, still has an outstanding uh, desegregation case that like has not been settled. In fact, I literally taught the grandchildren, well, the granddaughter of the original plaintiffs. Like, that's not a joke. The original plaintiffs in the Tangipahoe school desegregation case, I taught their granddaughter as a senior in high school. Uh, even, even, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk about another local issue. I'm not, I'm going to be very even killed about it, but even, uh, St. George, which is a breakaway city in East Baton Rouge Parish, it actually started on schools. Um, basically the people who lived in the area, they wanted better schools. They felt that their resources were not being used. They, they said they pay the majority of the taxes. They should be getting, you know, more resources as opposed to North Baton Rouge, seven out of five, which, uh, you know doesn't pay as much in taxes. Now, this is my soapbox, and this is my soapbox I want to say very, very quickly. Uh, one of the main areas in St. George that is behind all this stuff is Shenandoah. Uh, Shenandoah was a housing development built in the 1970s and 80s, which has a very strong Civil War motif. Things like Antietam and stuff like that. Uh, there's streets called Antietam, Shenandoah is another Civil War battle. Um, it never officially outlawed black residents, but the Civil War motif made it pretty clear that they weren't exactly welcome. Even to this day, I want to say about 90% of the people who live in Shenandoah are white. Um, it also has, I think, one of the most egregiously named streets out there. Um, in Shenandoah, there is a General Forest Avenue. Not Forest Avenue, General Forest. Forest with two R's. Uh, that can only be referring to Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, who was a uh, Confederate general. Uh, let me talk to you a little bit about Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, okay? Uh, Nathaniel Bedford Forrest starts out as a slave trader in Memphis. He's known for his brutality as a slave trader. Likewise, once the Civil War starts, he joins the Confederacy. He's the one in charge of the Fort Pillow Massacre. Uh, basically, a contingent of black soldiers surrender. Uh, they, black soldiers fight for the Union. Uh, they are prisoners of war. According to every rule of warfare, you treat prisoners of war okay. They surrender. They're unarmed. You treat them well. At least you can trade them for your own prisoners of war, get your own guys back. Um, Forrest does not care for this. He he kills them all. He, like, 
kills all the Union black soldiers who are unarmed and prisoners of war. Like, that's a war crime. That's a war atrocity. Um, he is known as a hero because of this. He gets all sorts of stuff named after him. Uh, there's a Forest County, Mississippi, which is, I believe that's where Hattiesburg is. Um, but that's probably not the reason why Shenandoah named him after him, uh, not why General Forrest is well known. Uh, General Bedford Forrest does not start, but he becomes the first Grand Wizard of a little organization called the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, like, the Klan sought him out to give their racist organization credibility. Like, do you understand that General Forrest was somebody that the Klan thought, oh, he's so racist, he can give our racism credibility. Like, do you get that? Like, and that's the guy a street is named after in the middle of Shenandoah. Am I saying everybody in Shenandoah is racist? No. Am I saying that black people are not allowed in Shenandoah? No. I mean, I know some black folks who live in Shenandoah. But do you see how it's problematic? It, 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 it shows that the past hasn't really passed. Because here's the thing. These lines that were drawn in the 1930s still have ramifications today. Even though they were never explicitly racist, they had plenty of racial dynamics. Likewise, the impact they had on the population wasn't just housing, but on a host of other services. Schooling, property taxes, sturdy services, stuff like that. As time went on, even though there were no barriers to black um, you know, people doing whatever they wanted to do in the country, they do tend to lag behind. And a lot of it is just this legacy. Um, another way of looking at this. All right, the median distance people live away from their mothers in the United States is 18 miles. I just thought that was an interesting statistic. The average person lives, the, the, you know, the median is 18 miles away. Uh, this number is much lower in urban areas and even lower for African Americans, who are most likely to live closest to their parents than other races. Now, some of this is choice, of course, but a lot of this is because of opportunity. Because black mobilization was limited for so long, and likewise black households don't have the wealth built up in their houses because of things like redlining, it should become, there's no surprise, there's still modern ramifications. Racism in the United States, I like to say it's like a rut or a path that's been walked down over several generations. Imagine a, a, a path in the woods, all right? Imagine that there's a path in the woods with guardrails. And it says you can only walk on this path, only walk on this path. You know, these guardrails exist to make sure you walk this path. Now, let's say these guardrails have been put into place for lifetimes, you know, for lifetimes, you know, generations of people. People have been walking in these woods, and they see the same pathways, the same guardrails, and you see that rut in the ground. You see that path. Now, let's say, theoretically, the, 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 the guardrails are taken away. You could say, you can walk wherever you want in the woods, the guardrails are gone. But the path of least resistance is the one where the guardrails have been. The one that's seen as the norm is the one of least resistance. And a lot of times in the United States, it's the one with the most racist history. Yes, legal systemic racism might be theoretically gone in the country, but de facto segregation, the real insidious segregation, the real insidious racism that's hard to root out is still definitely there. It's the ruts in the ground which our country just naturally goes through because it's the path of least resistance. 
I'm going to close with this, because this is a little bit more modern and probably more political than I normally give these podcasts. There's a couple of quotes that I have to say. The first is from Ta-Nehisi Coates. It's something that I like to say early on in my African American history course. He says, quote, race is the child of racism, not the father. Okay. Race is the child of racism, not the father. This is not to say that discrimination is not old. It is old. If you look throughout history, we've had discrimination on all sorts of things. Nationality, religion. Religion's the big one. Uh, nationality, you know, things like that. But the idea of race as we know it, okay? Race as we know it is only a few centuries old. It's not millennia old. It's not as old as time itself. Discrimination might be, I mean, sexism, good God, that's the oldest thing on the planet. But race as we know it did not exist before racism. The concept of race comes from racism. The idea that, hey, certain people act a certain way because of the color of their skin, these other attributes makes them less than human, is something that was done. The other one I'm going to talk about just has to do with the severity of racism. Uh, there's a guy named Jesus. Um, he lived about 2,000 years ago. And I'm going to be taking a little bit of liberty here, but I checked with one of my closest friends who's a pastor, and he said I'm okay with this. But if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, all right, uh, Matthew 5. Let's look at Matthew 5 in the verse 20s-ish. In fact, Matthew 5, 21 through 22 says, You have heard it said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever said to his father, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Likewise, verse 27 and 28. You've heard it said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think that's a standard we need to have about racism. Racism isn't just donning a white robe. Racism isn't just lynching somebody. Racism isn't just using the N-word. And some more as just, you know, murder is just killing somebody. Or adultery is having sex with somebody who's not your spouse. It's the idea that Jesus is saying is attitude. It's the idea of saying that, you know, just to look upon your heart. It's to presume that, you know, that somebody is poor because they're race, or that they're uneducated, or that their mere existence will decrease your property value, or that economic anxieties are rational enough to treat somebody less than human or less than an equal, and dismiss their movement completely out of hand. I think that's the more insidious, deeper racism that is harder to root out. It's not codified. It's attitudes. American history is loaded with this sort of stuff. Racism is an avert. It can be systematic even though it's outside the law. In fact, the most effective systematic racisms, in fact, the most, the most effective systems of all are not in law. They just kind of are. They're de facto. But even though we're not aware, they can still exist. And that is redlining. This is one of those times where the past isn't past. Even where you might say, hey, you know, uh, my, my, my ancestors were poor. I know plenty of people be like, oh yeah, my, my, you know, my, my grandparents were immigrants, but they came in the right way, they worked really hard, or here's this, you know, people I know, they're in a business, or they work with me. I get it, you know? But here's the thing, they didn't have the restrictions 
for so long. Those ruts were not as ingrained in the ground. They were able to chart their own course in a place that was not as ingrained. It was a place where the ruts did not exist. And those ruts are the things we really have to think about. And for that, this is Stuart Tully for Tully's Take on History, talking a little bit about redlining.